0: welcome to the eighth episode of making a racket i am nathan lee here with sean doherty and today we're gonna to finally recap the french open novak jokovic's historic win and barbara kochigova's also historic win but in a much different way we'll also talk about how Rafael nadal is out of wimbledon and the olympics due to Injury concerns and Naomi Osaka, who withdrew from the French Open after saying she would not do press conferences and then threats from the French Tennis Federation and the Grand Slams of possibly being defaulted, fines, other stuff like that. She withdrew from the tournament and now has withdrawn from Wimbledon, hoping or targeting to play again in the Tokyo Olympics. Lots of things happened, and we did and we're doing this podcast much later than we thought we would, but uh, conveniently, those two things happened and they happened on the same day. So we we'll get to talk about those. But first, we got to get into the French. We'll, we'll start with the men's because, I mean, we had already and, and probably a lot of other people had pretty much penciled Rafa Nadal. And uh, win his 21st major, win his 14th French surpass Roger Federer for most majors of all time. And at least get a step ahead of Novak on the major title race before Djokovic, you know, is favored to win Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. And that has changed a lot. Djokovic beats Nadal in a fantastic semifinal. Goes four sets. I mean, it was the, the first three sets, especially that third set reminiscent of the 2012 Aussie Open final. It was one of the best matches ever played. And the, the four set, not so much. but. At least, you know, we got to see that. And then Djokovic comes back from two sets to love down to beat Stefano Sitsipas in the final. Djokovic, now the first man in the open era to win every major twice. Nadal and Federer have not done that. Of course, Federer's issue has been the French. Nadal's issue has been the Aussie. Djokovic, finally his second French Open historic deal. 19 majors, one behind Federer and Nadal. And if he wins Wimbledon, which now with Nadal being out, he's got to be the even heavier favorite he really should tie Federer and Nadal at 20, although we said that about Nadal surpassing, and we, you know, we, we got kind of screwed on that one. So, I want to ask you, what did you, I mean, you, you watched both matches, Djokovic, like, how did he pull this off again? I mean, how did he look invincible and beat Nadal almost
1: at his own game in a way? I mean, he just beat him. He looked, like, invincible. He did. I mean he came out to the court and the commentators mentioned it while he was playing that he was not in a very good mood prior to the match. He was kind of snippy at his coaching staff. He warmed up with a last minute practice just for 20 minutes. And a few balls were said to have been launched out the stadium. So, and then he comes out there, he almost gets bageled in the first set. He did not look good. Nadal looked like it was just going to be another match that he just overwhelms Djokovic on clay. And then he kind of got a groove in the first set. He broke Nadal once or twice and just didn't win that set, but found a rhythm to which he could carry into the next three sets. It was incredible how solid he was against Nadal. And just the mental strength. To play Nadal point after point, and I don't even know how many unforced tears he had, but it was probably less than 10 after the first set. So, it was just an amazing match to watch in a clinic from Djokovic. For sure. That that
0: third set was crazy. It went to a tiebreak. Um, Nadal had a set point or two. Djokovic finally won it. What was crazy, though, is that they kept, really, they both kept going at it, and Nadal had a lot more on four stairs and still managed to stay in it. And that's why I was thinking, well, I mean, if, if Nadal really could still win the set, I, I remember seeing that Djokovic, I think, was a 5-4, I think it was 5-4-30-love, and he dumps a forehand in the net. Easy forehand winner, and I'm thinking, oh, man, and Nadal wins that game, and I'm thinking, man, Nadal's got the momentum now. But Djokovic just hung in there. It was one of the few unforced errors Djokovic made, and I, I just can't believe he hung in there like that. The the mental strength he was in that mode that we've seen so many times in so many big matches, where it does it's not even like Federer where he's just graceful and you know just runs through you and looks like he's just so much more talented than you are, and it's not Nadal who just seems to be so aggressive and just blows you off the court. It was just Djokovic was better in every way. It was. It and was. It was it's, ha- it's hard to explain. And he was, I think you mentioned it to me, that wasn't, wasn't Djokovic's spin rate about as much as Nadal's in that third
1: set? Yeah, I mean, it was only about 100 RPM less on the forehand side, which is incredible because it kept increasing after the first set. The first set was his lowest RPM in the match. Then the second set increased by marginally. Then the third set increased marginally until he was only a hundred below at all. Which is, I just can't believe he made that adjustment, with how he plays and everything.
0: It, it was really a clinic. And then, but you you had mentioned this before because Poss did make the run to the final, like we had predicted, and. Actually, beat Medvedev, who, good for him, he found a way to get into the quarters of the French. We, we didn't quite think that would happen. Beat Medvedev, beat Zverev in a five-setter in the semis, and then he was up two sets to love over Djokovic in the final. And it was starting to show up, like you had said, where it was like, well, if Djokovic does beat Nadal, Tsitsipas could find a way to beat Djokovic, very similar to that 2015 French Open where Rinka beat Djokovic after Djokovic beat Nadal in the
1: quarters. Right.
0: And it looked that way, not just, the first set was actually very even. It was not, Sissipas did not blow him off the court, really at all. I mean, it was a very good first set. That second set, though, it looked like Sissy got his teeth into it. Oh, yeah. It was like, oh, good God. I mean, the, and then Djokovic ended up leaving the court, got changed all of his clothes. And, and I had to watch it after it was live, but I was thinking, okay. So so I already knew what happened, but in a way, I get if I was watching live, I might have thought, "Wow, Djokovic is totally out of this." But knowing what happened, it just reminded me of that 2020 Aussie Open final when Djokovic was down two sets to one against Dominic Thiem, Mm -hmm. and he looked totally out of it. And Djokovic just kind of kept going, and he it just he just found he just found that level again. It's like he flipped a switch, and he's done that so many times. It's like. It's annoying to watch if you're really not a (laughs) Joker fan. It's annoying because the dude just, it looks like he just kind of checks out and then he flips the switch back on. Most people can't just flip the switch on like that. No. I mean, if they, if they do that, they're, they're just done. You know, it's not like a switch. It's like a, it's like a crank. You got, you got to really get yourself back into it. Get some opportunities.
1: Most people have to have to start off really hot or they'll just capitulate. I mean, I, most people will slow down after being hot. But Djokovic, he's ice cold and then just finds the rhythm and then there's nothing you can do to stop him. And that's just plain mental toughness.
0: And, and it's, not, it's not like Sitsipas necessarily gave him opportunities either, it felt like. It felt more like Djokovic just beat him. It felt like Djokovic went out there like it was a new match and just beat him in straight sets. Mm-hmm. I think the fifth set was the most resistance Sissy was able to give, and it still wasn't enough. And because at that point, Djokovic was Novak Djokovic, and I think he will finish as the greatest of all time. I mean, if he if he can I continue
1: do. to do this, I mean, just the records he is now—just two at every major, he's won every Masters one thousand, which Nadal or Feder have done. And I mean, if people want to. Look at majors, he's one, one major win behind. And like you said, grass is coming up, and Djokovic is notoriously good on grass.
0: And, and his best surface is a hard court, but at the same time, the, the gap between him and the rest of the field, especially with Federer just coming back, and Nadal not being in it, it is big. I think that's the big thing. I mean, the Aussie Open, that's his tournament. That's similar to the Nadal French Open thing. Djokovic is kind of just unbeatable there. But at Wimbledon, it's not necessarily how good he is. It's also that and just, I mean, that's typically not the best surface of most of the players today. Yeah, and That's why he really should win. At the U.S. Open, it's up in the
1: air. Really don't know. And you just never know with injuries. You know, you had- It's like Djokovic having the career calendar, or sorry, the... um, The the non-calendar year Grand Slam. He held all four majors at once. And then after that, his mental... uh, I don't know know how to describe it. Just his... He went off the charts. He went off the deep end for a little while. His body kind of failed him a little bit, and... Which, fair and I mean, winning four in a row is tough. I think mentally the
0: letdown at that point, there was a letdown. That I'm not sure he'll have this time around. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And if he did, it would be after he breaks 20. If he gets to 21, I feel like that's when it would hit if it does. Because that would also not just be 21, that would actually be him winning all four majors in the same year. That would right. be historic achievement on top of historic achievement. Which, even more historic than what he did in 2016. That's the other thing though he has over Fed and Nadal is Neither of them have won all four majors in a row. Neither. And, and they have not done that. I mean, Nadal got close once. Federer got close so many times, really just needed to win the French. <laughs> I mean, who knows what would have happened then? But I mean, you really you just look and you're like, is Djokovic. And it's crazy to think, you know, this is the same guy who had who used to have issues with the heat who used to have issues with, I guess, almost motivation in a sense, used to just sometimes look out of sorts. I remember his serve used to be crazy inconsistent, like double fault after double fault. <laughs> but he still would be like number three. Used to th- eat gluten? Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's the other thing. We realize now the dude was number three in the world, sometimes two. And the dude was eating gluten and had celiac. And, and he didn't figure that out until before 2011. And... Of course, 2011 was the breakout year. I mean, I mean, I guess at that point, we should have known, man, this dude's going to be really good. <laughs> I, think, I think at that point, it's like, no, this,
1: this is going to be an all-time great in the making. Shout out to Tsitsipas. I mean, even though he's been a little overshadowed by Djokovic in his historic run, uh, he had a good tournament. And this is a breakthrough for him. A small breakthrough, but a breakthrough.
0: No, for sure. I mean, he's made a few semis. Now he's gotten to make that final. He um He's always looked like, I mean, I'm, I'm not completely including team because he is a little older team, of course, did win that U.S. Open. Of that younger generation, he's always looked like kind of the, he started to look lately like the best player of them. And, I mean, there, there's a reason we predict him to go to the final. Part of that, of course, was not having Joe vision at all, but the other half was among the other guys, like, He really was the best one coming into it. I I think he'll continue to have this momentum. I don't know how good he'll do at Wimbledon just because of the grass. But I think he may be able to adapt to it all right. I don't know if he'll adapt to it as well as some of the others. But I do think Poss is one to watch. I think he's only going up. I'm glad now he's at least on the same level as Zverev. And at least both he and Zverev have now choked two sets to love leads in Grand Slam finals. (laughs) It's just... At least one of them was to Novak Djokovic.
1: <sighs> yeah, oh my goodness. We'll see how I that goes. I don't want to talk about Zverev.
0: Yeah, I really <laughs> don't either. I don't really care for him, but, um, Medvedev, of course, has made multiple major finals. We'll see how he does. You know, he really should do well on the grass. And you and I were talking about this earlier. He really should figure this surface out. If he can figure out the clay, he really should get grass down. He should. It's, I think Matteo Berrettini's one to watch. Not not to win. Djokovic is going to no. win.
1: But to, to yes, get as Djokovic. far
0: to lose to nobody but Djokovic. Well, I mean, first and of all, Federer is going to make charge.
1: the final and get up two sets to love, like 5-0 against Djokovic. <laughs> and then he'll have match point, you know, 40 love, double fault, um, hit a net cord. And then Djokovic uh, will slap a cross court winner return, and um, then he'll have 20 majors.
0: How many times has Federer lost match point to Djokovic?
1: <laughs> lost to <laughs> Djokovic while times. having
0: match point? Too many times. Because <laughs> that was really Djokovic's. I mean, he did make the final in 07. the US Open won the 08 Aussie. But that was like his breakthrough to like true all time great, was when he won that US Open semi over Fed, saved a match point, saved two match points. And then he did it the next year. Did the same thing, and did one of them like he and one of them he just cranked a forehand return. Yeah, like clipped the line. It's like, good god, this isn't gonna end. And then of course uh, the infamous one, 2019 at Wimbledon, championship point, only the second man in the Open era. That was. I mean, that one was also a, a winner. Yeah, one of them was a yeah, one of them was a winner. One of them was, I think Fed dumped in the net. Actually, that was really yeah. similar to 2011 at the US Open.
1: Yeah, no, it's in, in a way. A little flip. History repeats itself. History does repeat itself.
0: Unfortunately. I think if Fed did that again, I think he'd just retire.
1: I think he would too. I think he'd just call it. Even good. if he
0: didn't, we'd probably all tell him to just retire. <laughs> just because that's although do you really want to go out like that? I, I
1: don't know. I would. You know, (laughs) because at that point, Novak's the all-time great. And at least you can say you lost to the all-time great.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Let's get to the women now. Barbara Krzykova. And I'll be honest, I had to figure out how to pronounce that name. And then figure out how to pronounce a lot of names over this French Open because (laughs) it broke wide open. Of our top three favorites, we had, you know, Barty, Shviatek, and lost. Barty withdrew from her second round match of an injury. So that wasn't good. And then Arenia Sabalenka lost to Anastasia Pavlychenkova in the fourth round, and she actually made it all the way to the final. She did really good on that. And then Igor Shviatek lost to Maria Sakkari in the quarters. Sakkari then lost to Krachikova 9-7 in the third, had match point. Krachikova went on to win not only that, but also won doubles. It's the first time since 2000 that at the French Open, that um, somebody has won singles and doubles, women's singles and women's doubles. So, I mean, good for her. And I I was looking and I was looking at the results and I was like, okay, for one thing, she should not have been unseated. That's partially due to the rankings, you know, taking the best results from two years. Really this year, she had done better than Pavlachenkova, who was seated. Polina didn't really have a good tournament until Madrid, when she made a crazy run to the semis, and then now this French Open final. That's it. I mean, there's no other good thing about this year for her. Um, and Chernyeva's had some good results. So, and you looked at him. So, I mean, I'll let you kind of talk about
1: that. Yeah, I mean, she uh, the, her biggest one of the year before this was easily at Dubai, equivalent of a Masters 1000. And she, she lost to Muguruza in the final. She beat Sakari in the first round, beat Ostapenko, had some other good matches, and then, and then other results in this, this calendar year has, have been barely decent, nothing outstanding, but it's not like she's a random, unseated, qualifying player. She it, has promise.
0: Yeah, and I, I thought she could definitely make like the fourth round or even the quarters. Looking at that draw, I was like, "Wow, she really could do pretty well just looking at it." The the thing, the the first thing she's been, and I thought I had heard this name before. She's been playing well in the doubles tour. Three years ago, she was number one in the world in doubles, and she's back to that now because she also won the French in doubles. At the one 2018 French Open and Wimbledon. That that's pretty much how they got there, and then have really she's been at the top of the doubles game for a while and she's also won three major mixed titles all at the Aussie including one this year so she's been around but it wasn't until last year she started to break through but of course you know covid kind of kind of screwed that up but near the end of the year she made the fourth round of the French and that's that was by far her best result this was only her fifth singles main draw at a grand slam And it's only, I mean, the first time she did 2018, she got to the lost first round of the French and then didn't make one until 2020. Second round of the Aussie, fourth round of the French. This year got to the second round of the Aussie. And now she won the French Open. So this is, in that sense, it's a huge jump. I mean, really, the next step would be, you know, another fourth round or a quarterfinal based on what she was, how she was playing. But she she skipped a few steps, basically. I, I can't believe she did it. Um, she's still, when she plays in Wimbledon, she's number 15 in the world now. And she will play in her first ever Wimbledon main draw. (laughs) She never actually managed to qualify. As a matter of fact, she never even got to the final round of qualifying. And she's only won one qualifying match at Wimbledon. And she will be a top 16 seed. So, I mean, this is a crazy thing for her. What's interesting though is I think because of the double success, I don't know if the pressure will hit her as hard. Mm-hmm. I want to know what you think about that. Because this is not somebody like maybe Ostapenko who just kind of broke through. No, this no. is a different situation.
1: This is she's experienced, maybe in a different way than most players are, but she has experience from her doubles game. And she's played on the big stage, maybe with less people watching but she's still been in pressure situations. I mean, winning a doubles major is not an easy feat. right? And then now that she knows she can have the success on the singles tour as well, it might just propel her forward and give her some momentum for the rest of the year and maybe for her career. Mm -hmm. And I, I could see her, well, we've seen doubles players in the past do well. In doubles and then dabble in singles and then slowly fade away from doubles just because it's very difficult to focus on both. So I don't know. I think she this could be career changing for her. I think it could. I
0: mean, you know, then and part of that is not just that, but the prize money is so much smaller in doubles. Mm-hmm. Um, financially, you really need to make that jump too. What's interesting though is I don't know. How many? I mean, this is one of the weirder situations. She's number one in the world in doubles, as good as she is in singles. Now, she's the top-ranked doubles player, and she's done all of the all of this. Really, I want to say, Katerina Sinyakova. and not and she's been doing this since juniors. She's been winning girls doubles titles with her. Now she's won major doubles titles. She won this doubles title, so they've they've got a great partnership. That could be interesting too. What they decide to do as Kachikova gets better in singles. She could be an interesting play at Wimbledon because this isn't like some, you know, as, as Agassiz called them, dirt rats. She's not a dirt rat. She is actually one of the more versatile players that I've seen. Not only the good baseline game, but good volleys, which you kind of have to on some level to win doubles. Also mm-hmm. win Wimbledon doubles. I mean, she's got good volleys. She's got a pretty complete game. I think she could make a run at Wimbledon. She could really find a way. I mean, it's always hard to predict, but. I think she's pretty well suited for the grass.
1: Yeah. I mean, definitely could see her go out there and lose first round, second round, just because of the surface change and the fatigue of only having two weeks before Wimbledon. Right. Yeah, we got to remember. I mean, we didn't mention that with Djokovic, but it's also because he's Djokovic and he's just one muscle. (laughs) doesn't exactly need rest. But with her, you know, she had she does have the endurance from doubles, but she also had to play doubles and singles at the French and played the maximum amount of matches she could. So,
0: yeah, I don't know how many times she's played 13 matches in one tournament and seven of them were singles, even if it was over a two week period. I think that's that's something that's hard to do. The mental letdown is what could be interesting for her, but I think she's maybe a little more suited to do it than some of the breakthrough champions that we've seen. I think she may be special in that sense that she can handle that in ways that others haven't. Um, But I'm I'm excited to see what will happen. I mean, Wimbledon is a little bit interesting for all these players, you know, a surface that is really not played on, but that, that two week thing is big, not just for Djokovic, but it's, Really, a lot. I think a big part of the reason the doll withdrew. I think he said no. I'm not pushing yeah. it. in two weeks. No, because he still made the semis. He only played. You know, he was still. He was only done two days earlier than usual. So I mean, you're talking two weeks instead of the three week breaks that they've had in the last few years. I think that's a toll on his body. Plus the Olympics. Then he's got to go play Toronto and or Cincy. And then the US Open, I mean, it, it'd be stupid it's for him tough. really to do it all. What I do want to say, the interesting thing, though, about a lot of matches, bo- both Djokovic and Krzykovic did this. Djokovic played the, oh, a tournament the week before in Belgrade and then won the French. That has not happened to a player winning the tournament right before a major and then winning that major, because normally it's stupid to try to do it. Since Pat Rafter, 1998, he won the 250 event in Long Island and then won the U.S. Open. Kuczykova, the first woman to do so, she won in Strasbourg the week before, then won the French. Since 2012, Victoria Azarenka did it to win the Aussie Open. She, she won Sydney the week before, won the Aussie Open. Maybe that will take a toll. Maybe that's, there's a letdown there. Not for Djokovic, necessarily. He's Novak Djokovic. But for Kuczykova, I wonder what that'll do to her.
1: Because that is a lot of matches. It's that, a lot of and matches. It's no wonder that that feat is so rare because most people don't want to play a tournament right before one of the biggest tournaments in the world. So,
0: well, yeah, when you're a top player, and especially the way the calendar's set up, this time it was different because the French was delayed a week. Normally, it's it's uh, it's kind of a logjam.
1: Uh, right.
0: Before clay, it's Madrid, and then Rome. And then you have one week with a, with a couple 250 events and then the French. This time there was at least a little bit of a break. So Djokovic was not going back to back to back to back to back, but he did at least have one week in there before he went on Belgrade. So um, that was a special opportunity. But you see that though. I mean, Wimbledon, you don't see them if they play a grass court to him. If the top players play a grass court to him, they'll play, you know, the ones in Halle and Queens or maybe even that first week. They're not going to go play right before. The U.S. Open, it's Winston-Salem. Well, they're not going to play that, right? The Aussie, typically similar to the grass court season. So, and Historic achievement in that sense. And with that, we'll take a quick break. After the break, we're going to talk about Rafa Nadal withdrawing, Naomi Osaka withdrawing, and what all of that means as we go ahead in the year.
1: Embiid and uh, Collins had a little scuffle. Embiid was doing the thing he had like his arms back but he was like falling on top of him acting like he wasn't trying to touch him or something oh. <laughs> Let me see this Who started it? I want to see who started it I it to you
0: Oh damn Oh damn I said, hey, I don't have my hands on him. I'm just grabbing him. <laughs> what if I'm gonna kick your ass if you say anything? And there's
1: no way Trey Young pushed him. Yeah. Because, like, Trey Young grabs his jersey and pulls the other way. So <laughs> there's no way he likes. What did John
0: Collins do here, though? It's like he nicked him in the face.
1: And Joe's <laughs> like, ha. There's two big idiots the Baptist and the process. I can't believe they're going to do the Olympics, but
0: they're going. I mean, I know. can. I can't. I can. I take. I take that back. I can't. But they really shouldn't. But They are, and we're going to watch it. Yeah.
1: Head oh yes. Yeah. I'm not missing it. Headaches. Okay. <laughs> to be fair, some of the like, I feel bad for all the athletes that oh, had to last year. Yeah, I did too. So. I can understand why they really want it to go on.
0: Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Bryce
1: Hopple. Right, yeah. I want to see him do well.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you're talking, I mean, athletes in sports that aren't really as big most of the time. Yeah. Are big during the Olympics. I mean, it's huge. Swimmers, gymnasts. I mean, running. you You just take out the one event that, you know, people watch, then. Kinda, kind of, yeah. Because then it'd be what an eight-year gap. That's yeah. a whole career. That can be a whole career. I mean, we understand tennis, you know. And mean, that that can be everything. Without an Olympics,
1: right.
0: <laughs> that's, that's hard. So I definitely understand it. I mean, I understand it from their perspective. Very, very much. Yeah, I hit the pause button because I didn't. I, I was like, this is gonna be a minute. <laughs> Man. Well, welcome back to the eighth episode of Making a Racket. And I just got to say, our next episode of Flags and Fouls, we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about. Probably oh, boy. Thursday the 24th. <laughs> There's too much. Like, nothing There's has lot. made any sense in the NBA. Everybody's getting hurt. And um, it's, it's, it's chaos. We, we just saw the game, a game where a power outage happened. Like, I, I, I give up. I think we've seen everything. So let's go to the the first withdrawal that happened. It was Rafael Nadal announcing on Thursday that he was going to withdraw from Wimbledon and the Olympics in order to really look forward at the U.S. Open. Uh, Context, Nadal just lost at the French Open for only the third time in his career. Nadal, 20 major titles. Two of them were at Wimbledon, but hasn't won the event since 2010. Um, Historically, some up and down results. Last 10 years, he's made runs to the final, made good runs to semis, but has sometimes run into guys and just lost early. You know, big servers, certain volleyers, just guys that kind of got red hot against Nadal. And it seemed to happen like every year for a while. Um, But, um, just kind of how it goes. Also, context on Wimbledon. First one in two years. Last year, they did not play. Due, basically, they had insurance that kind of prevented them or that kind of protected them. So they, they pulled out completely. They were, despite COVID, the only major not to happen. Um, the French got delayed. The U.S. Open found a way to get it done. So in, in the long run, this is a big deal for Joker's as we talked about, because now he's really the heavy favorite, if he wasn't already. You have Federer, but how good is he going to be? How match tough is he going to be? How good does he need to be? You know, stuff like that. Do you think, I mean, do you think this is a good move for Rafa? And there's probably a lot of reasons why, but I mean, do you think this is the best move for Rafa right now?
1: You know, I was kind of thinking with Federer, with drawing out of the the French Open mid-tournament, I wonder if Nadal was influenced by that, thinking, oh, if we can do that, then maybe it is a good idea for me to go ahead and skip Wimbledon, save my energy, don't want to get hurt, especially with I, – I doubt he's paying too much attention to how many titles Novak has, but maybe he took that into account and said, you know, Wimbledon's just not my tournament. And I'd rather save my body for later French Opens, later years, just to prepare. Uh,
0: yeah, the U.S. Open, he has won four times. He actually has managed to get multiple runs at that. Uh, Wimbledon, he had the two years, not in a row, but two years that he played in a row. 08 and 10 where he won it, just hasn't won it since. I think for Nadal, the, the other thing, the French Open being delayed a week, which in essence... I mean, the grass court season was still three weeks long, but for the players that made it to the second week of the French, it was two weeks. I think that played a part. I think just in general, having the Olympics played a part, I think that's why he cut that out too. He's won a gold medal in singles. He's won a gold medal in doubles. I think he's looking ahead to his, in a way, his legacy. But at the same time, you mentioned the Grand Slam numbers. He said before, that's not a big deal for him. It's not a big deal like it is for Djokovic. Joe Grisette, that's, that's the goal right now. That's the goal, to be the greatest player that's ever played, to have all the records. And really, right. he's on his way at doing that. But I think Nadal has always had injury problems. And we did see, at the end of that French Open semi, did see something with his ankle. I don't, I don't know if maybe that played a part. Maybe if there's something there. Maybe if there's something somewhere else. That Yeah. And it's not just Federer withdrawing in the middle of the French. I think it's that maybe reminded him of in 2017-2018 when Federer didn't play the clay court season. That, that's, that's a bigger commitment because that's a longer stretch of time. Federer actually, when he was coming back, said, no, I'm not going to screw with the clay. Didn't play that again until 19. So I, I think that. I think he's taking a cue from that, realizing... And we did wonder, when Fed withdrew from the French, at what point would maybe Nadal stay the same for Wimbledon, right? And what, mm-hmm. what, when would he pull the plug
1: on that? Um, because, I mean, it's, it's such a... Grass court season's short. Um, if you don't have success at Wimbledon, then you didn't have a successful grass court season. I mean, that's it. It's, there's no tournaments that back you up.
0: Yeah, I mean... There are, and at least some of them have been increased to 500 events, which was a bit overdue. But, yeah. Yeah, what, what is there? We know the injury problems he's always had. The transition's transitions kind of hard on every player. But especially on someone like that, I, I think the, the fact that really he's done well at Wimbledon at all and won titles and made finals early in his career is actually very odd. Um, it's not something he should be able to do. And he's finally tapped out of it. But Naomi Osaka is the other one. She withdrew from Wimbledon. She is targeting the Olympics to come back in her native Japan. But that—that's a different deal. We understand that the French Open, all of that that happened. We we understand that, um, you know, she said before the French, "I'm not going to do press." Um. Pretty pretty much decided not to do that, and she said she'd take whatever fines came, the Grand Slams did step in after she actually did skip that first-round press conference and did say they may find her, they may default her even if it continued to happen, and Osaka decided to withdraw from the tournament entirely. She decided that she's had depression really since the 2018 U.S. Open, although a lot more meaning has been given to a clip of Charleston months before that where she actually at a press conference pretty much said she had depression. She was depressed. And a lot, a lot a lot, of scrutiny has been placed on that. A lot of scrutiny has been placed on the fact that in 2018, when she kind of made that breakthrough, she couldn't talk to the press. She couldn't. She was not just awkward. I mean, it was hard to watch. And now to see her actually stand up for what she believes in, to stand up for social justice, to... Um, not just in the press room, not just even on the court, but on social media. For someone like her, I think it may have become an overlook. And I don't... And, and also, one other thing. This is the same person when she won her first major title, the 2018 U.S. Open. This was the same match, and I'm surprised I didn't think about this at first. When she beat Serena Williams, this was a match... Where's where Serena? Serena. Um, got a, a violation of some kind. I wish I could remember it. And the umpire gave her a point penalty. The umpire gave her a warning, gave her a point penalty. It seemed like maybe the umpire maybe made himself too much of the match. What well, we talk about maybe in basketball, football, you know, the refs making themselves a part of the game. Uh, that pretty it doesn't really happen to us, but it happened this time. And, and that's fine. You know, Osaka won. That's some pressure on her. As Osaka was given the trophy, as Osaka's name was announced to win, the New York crowd booed her. And it was one of the saddest displays, and it was one of the most disappointing displays from a crowd that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's not her fault. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing she can do about that. And you could tell it affected her. She actually did start crying. Yes. And I don't know, I I don't know how I would handle that. Much less someone, you know, who maybe already has been having issues. I don't know how I would handle it. I don't know how you would handle it. I don't know how anyone's supposed to handle that. That's sick. That's sick what happened that day. So I, and so
1: when she referenced that, that maybe did set off a light bulb. Like, you know, that was it. That, that was a big part, but. I want to know, what do you think? Because we, we also have seen in
0: the NBA, I'll cross this over a little bit, um, after losing game five, they just won game six, but Sixers lost game five and beat actually started off hot this time instead of, you know, going 0 for 12 or whatever in the fourth. He, he started off 8 for 8, but then kind of cooled off, looked gassed. The Sixers ended up blowing a huge lead. And if you're on Twitter at all, you've already seen the memes, I'm pretty sure. And they blew it, and Embiid didn't do the press.
1: And it, that was kind of a thing, though. It's like, I mean, what what do you think about it? I'll let you take this over. Oh, uh, with Embiid, that, I mean, there was, I mean, in Embiid's case, completely separating Osaka and Embiid. Embiid was basically a sore loser. I mean, that's what he was. You can't go from happily doing a press conference after victory to blowing a lead and acting like you're the victim basically because he's not, I mean, it's complete two different situations that have the same. Um, I don't know what to call it. It's just two different situations and it gives perspective into each of them, I guess, because Osaka's not doing it after a lot, or she's not wanting to do them at all, whether she wins or loses. She just doesn't want to do them. And I go back and forth with how I view her stand on things on that particular aspect, because I do want her to. Be okay mentally, and I don't want her to force herself to do something that is really hard for her to do, um, mental health wise. Then I also know that endorsements endorse her because they want her to have time in the spotlight, and it's unfortunate because they're just trying to make money. Um, And the same goes for reporters who are just trying to get their story published. And it's so difficult to decompress, figure out what's the right thing to do. Yeah, um,
0: it it is because you and I have both grown up and and really she has too. She's not much uh, older. We've grown up in a world with social media. We've grown up in a world where it's not just the traditional media. And I think, and that's changed how we interact with celebrities, with athletes, with all kinds of people. That there's another avenue besides a press conference, besides a reporter to, to write your story. There's, there's so many other avenues here. And I wonder if maybe there's a way to do all of this. In, in, is, is there a different way? Tennis is traditionally... Tennis is a more traditional sport that's always been resistant to change. It's not always a bad thing, but it can hinder the sport sometimes. Mm -hmm. I just don't, I I wonder if maybe in all sports, we really need to rethink the press conference. Because at this point, it's just, I mean, you do kind of wonder, it's like they're they're sitting up there and answering questions about what? I mean, what what does it really give us an insight
1: into? What do these mm
0: -hmm. things really give?
1: I, I'm a small person in large room, but I've never really paid attention to press conferences and I've never gone online and read, this is what they said in that post-match interview. Right. Now, that's with tennis. To be fair, I have, in other sports, read post-match interviews, like in, in the NBA. I like to see what they have to say after a loss or something. So maybe there's another, there's other people out there who do do the same thing, but for tennis. And I don't know, it's just, it's just such a complex situation. What is interesting is
0: in a weird way, the media actually, I felt defended Osaka better than tennis fans did at least. I don't know. I mean, traditional actually just people, fans in general, um, People in the sports world actually defended her a lot, but it sometimes seemed like she got the short end of the stick from the tennis world. And I think that that's, that's representative of something too. But what was interesting though, is in fact, the media probably defended her better than some of the fans did in a way shows that the traditional media, it still has a major role to play and an important role to play in interpreting these stories. Mm -hmm. Um, the traditional me is still because of the work that goes into it, the how thorough it usually is. There is a lot of. There's a lot of stuff there that you just don't get with, frankly, what you and I are now. What I hope to be is a traditional
1: journalist. But that that's not what we are right now. And that's fine.
0: There's a role for them. And, and but. It was interesting how they still defended her and were kind of like, well, I mean, I'd watch you know, ESPN. And it was kind of like, okay, yeah, we do need to figure out how to get our stories. But at the same time, we can't just like treat this like it's nothing. And the Grand Slams right. went too hard. They put their foot down when they did not need to put their foot down. That doesn't work anymore. That doesn't work like it used to in sports. You can't just tell an athlete to, to shut up and dribble. You can't tell an athlete to do anything. I mean, and, and that's The athletes have so much power, which is not always good, but I think it's better than what it used to be. because mm-hmm. used to that power and, that, and it still does reside with owners, with richer people, with I mean, yeah, they, these athletes are rich people, but they're going up against much richer people. I mean, there, there's a hierarchy here that's, that, that we yeah. forget about as fans sometimes. I do think we have to reimagine. The press conference, I think we have to reimagine how we interact with these players. And I think in general, we have to treat mental health much better than we are now.
1: We have to realize so. that just because we can't see it, it's, I would dare say, more important.
0: That's debatable. But I see where you can make the case it's more important
1: than physical health
0: in many ways. Yeah. Um, I would agree. But then you do have the. I mean, yeah, Embiid may have been a sore loser, but at the same time, maybe he doesn't want to talk to it. Maybe that's the story that he didn't want to talk. Read into that what you will. Maybe that should be his choice. Something to think about. I don't have the answers. I wish I did because I don't don't know anything else. I mean, I'm playing FIFA and I'm having I do a post-match conference after that. I mean, it's so embedded that we actually, <laughs> the video games use it for realism, you know what I mean? But FIFA and 2K and even Madden now, you know, there's press conferences. That's like part of the game It's so ingrained in it that we don't always think about it. I think it may have caused a reawakening. I just hope, I think Osaka will be all right. She should come back for the Olympics. I just hope it doesn't come at the cost of. One of not only one of the most marketable female athletes in the world, that's why this is a big deal too, but one of the most talented tennis players we've seen in a long time. Somebody that can carry the sport
1: for years to come. We don't have the answers because you look at one situation, I mean, every situation is different, right? And maybe Embiid does have mental health issues, we wouldn't know, only he knows. True, but for for this argument's sake, let's say he doesn't. You take that situation and compare it to Osaka, and how do you compromise to where both parties are happy? That's difficult, and there
0: really are a lot of issues
1: in sports that I think
0: we really have to reimagine. I think in tennis, yes. we really have to do it because it's always been behind. I hope Osaka is okay. To where she feels she'll enjoy the Olympics. I worry you mentioned it actually. I'm a little surprised she wants to do the Olympics. That's a hell of a lot of attention. Not just, I mean, tennis isn't the big Olympic sport, but I mean, one of the most marketable athletes in the world from in her native country. That's going to be interesting, but we'll see what happens. And we'll probably talk a little more about this, but we'll also preview Wimbledon and we'll do something we have no idea we're still thinking about it on the fly next week we got it coming out saturday the 26th we're gonna have our friend shen and shaquille on again subscribe to us on apple podcast spotify wherever you get your podcast follow us at making a racket three on twitter and instagram make sure you also listen to flags and fouls our nfl and nba podcast good god we're gonna have a lot to talk about in the nba this is gone <laughs> stupid follow uh, subscribe anywhere you get your podcast follow us at flags and fouls twitter and instagram and my man we are out